Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Made by Podster. Was it self-defense? That was the central question in the trial I'm going to tell you about today. Welcome to Tracing Darkness. My name is Lainey Hobbs, and today's episode is about a trial that has divided opinion and will no doubt also create different opinions among those of you who are listening in. This episode is somewhat different from the ones I usually do in the sense that it focuses a little more on the trial than on the actual crime or investigation of it because at no point was there any ambiguity about them. In this case, on the other hand, the question is, was it self-defense? Botham Jean was born on September 29, 1991, in the Caribbean island state of St. Lucia. The island has about 180,000 inhabitants, and its capital, Castries, where Botham grew up, is also the island's largest city. Botham had an older sister, Alyssa, and a brother, 10 years younger than him, named Brandt. In their family, religion played a big role. All the children attended Christian schools, and the whole family participated in Christian extracurricular activities. In high school, Botham did very well and received a scholarship to study at a religious university in the United States. Although Botham's family knew they would miss him at home, they encouraged him to go to the United States because he could get a much better university education there. In 2011, at the age of 19, Botham was accepted as a student at Harding, a Christian university in the state of Arkansas. It was his dream to work as an accountant, so he decided to study economics at the university. Some of Botham's family members also moved to the United States, including his older sister and mother, who moved to New York. Although Botham was now leaving his native island, he had big plans for his return. He dreamed that after a successful career in the U.S., he would return to St. Lucia and run for prime minister. It was an ambitious goal to set, but Botham's friends and family supported him in it. One of his friends even described him as born to lead. Botham settled into his new life in the U.S. At university, he met like-minded people and spent much of his free time participating in various activities for religious students, such as gospel choirs and a Bible study group that he led. In 2016, Botham graduated from college and, as a friend of his had done, 
moved to Dallas, Texas, where he also found a job. In Dallas, Botham began working for PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, for whom his job was to assess companies' financial risks. He liked his job, but was not very social, except for the church extracurricular activities in Dallas, which he also engaged in. Here, he led a weekly Bible reading group for teenage boys at the local church. At the time of the events I'm about to recount, Botham was living alone in a small apartment in Dallas. It was Thursday, September 6, 2018, and Botham was driving his car home from work as usual. During the car ride, he called his sister and asked her how she was and told her about his day at work. According to the sister, Botham had laughingly told her that he was going to go home, sit on the couch and eat ice cream and watch TV for the rest of the day. He had just had his wisdom teeth removed and had been told by his dentist to eat as much ice cream as he possibly could. Botham hung up and when he got home, he parked his car in his own space in the parking lot that belonged to his property. When Botham got inside, he sat down as he had indicated to his sister that he would, on the couch with a tub of ice cream and a football game running on the screen. He sat like that all evening, and even as darkness fell, he was so preoccupied that he didn't get up and turn on the lights. At about five minutes to ten in the evening, Botham suddenly heard a creaking and knocking at his door. A woman he didn't know had opened the door and asked him to put his hands up. When Botham got up from the sofa, the woman fired two shots at him, one of which hit him directly in the heart. But he did not die immediately from his injuries. A few minutes later, the emergency services received a call from the woman. She said she was a police officer and said she had thought she entered her own apartment when she saw someone sitting on her sofa. When the person on the couch had got up and started coming towards her, she fired her service weapon at him twice. The emergency services were stunned by the woman's message. So you shot someone? The 911 operator asked. Yes, I thought I had gone into my own apartment. Oh my God, I'm so sorry, said the woman on the phone, who repeated a total of 19 times during the call that she thought she had walked into her own apartment. A few times she also said, I'm in trouble now, and repeated several times that she would probably lose her job now. On two occasions, she also said that she was very tired. In the background of the recording of the emergency call, the woman can be heard trying to make contact with Botham. Hey, bud, she says. The call was ended when police arrived at the scene. Since Botham lived only a few blocks from Dallas's central police station, it didn't take long for help to arrive at his residence. The many police cars and ambulances attracted the attention of other residents. A woman who lived in the same building as Botham came outside and filmed the scene on her phone. The resident noted that a distraught woman in police uniform came out of Botham's apartment after the officers who had been called to the scene had arrived. The same video also shows Botham being rushed out of the apartment on a stretcher while paramedics tried to revive him. The woman who filmed later posted it on the internet, causing quite a stir. People were outraged that she had filmed the events 
and some even sent her death threats, as well as saying this act would cost her her job. Although the woman who filmed paid a high price for her actions, the video proved to be crucial evidence in the subsequent trial. Later that evening, Botham's sister received a call from the hospital. Botham had not survived, but had died from injuries sustained in a shooting. The sister was paralyzed. After all, he had told her he would stay at home all night and watch TV and eat ice cream. His sister knew Botham was quiet and not involved in any criminal activity, so it made no sense to her that he would have been shot. The hospital said they could give no more details about the incident, but that police would probably contact Botham's family to tell them what had happened. The very next day, the investigation in Botham's apartment, the crime scene, was completed. Rumors began to swirl in the city and the media had also got wind of the case, but concrete information was scarce and of varying quality. But people found several details of the incident curious. It was clearly not a shooting in which the victim had displayed threatening behavior, such as raising a gun and shooting as a result. Eventually, the police announced that the perpetrator was an off-duty police officer who had in fact used their service weapon to fire and that an investigation had been opened. The name of the shooter had not been made public at that time. The police had neither arrested nor dismissed the shooter. Instead, they stated that the shooter had been temporarily dismissed, causing public outrage. After three days of investigation, the police announced that they suspected the shooter of manslaughter. They published the name and picture of the police officer. It was a 30-year-old woman named Amber Geiger, who had worked as a police officer in Dallas for about five years. Amber reported to the police station that night and was arrested on suspicion of manslaughter. The next day, she was released on bail. The investigation was not carried out by any of Amber's colleagues. In fact, it was a completely different police force that handled the case. During the questioning of Amber, she told her side of the story. She told investigators that she had left the police station to go home at 9.30 in the evening. It had been a long 13 and a half hour working day and Amber had felt very tired. She had spent the whole day taking part in a long prepared operation to catch a large gang of criminals and bring them to the station. According to Amber, she had not had time to change her clothes at the station, but had kept them on, which is why she was still carrying her service weapon and badge. However, she had taken off her body camera. Amber said she lived in the same building as Botham and that her apartment, which was similar to Botham's, was right below his. She lived on the third floor. He lived on the fourth floor. Each floor has its own parking area, so that residents on each floor have direct access from the parking garage to that floor of the apartment building. Amber told police that she had been convinced that night that she had parked her car on the third floor where her personal parking space and apartment were located. During the car ride, Amber had spoken on the phone with the man she was in a relationship with, and multiple sources said the conversation between them had been heated and that they had planned to have dinner together. According to messages found on Amber's phone, they had been writing about this while she was at work. After the phone conversation ended and the car was parked, 
Amber moved towards what she thought was her apartment. At no time did she realize that she was on the wrong floor and that she was going to the wrong apartment. And when she took out her keys, she found that the door was open. She pushed the door open and found a man she had never seen before sitting on the couch. As it was dark both outside and inside the apartment, she couldn't really see or get a good impression of what the man looked like. Amber grabbed her service weapon and ordered the man on the couch to put his hands up. According to Amber, the man on the couch was startled and yelled, Hey! Hey! several times. As the man was getting up or had got up, Amber fired her gun at the man twice, one hitting him in the heart and the other hitting the wall. It was only here that she realized she was not in her home. According to Amber, she had thought that her apartment had been burgled and she was afraid that the burglar would kill her. Amber admitted that after calling the emergency services, she had not tried to revive both of them properly, but that instead, she had sent a text message to the man she had a relationship with in which she wrote that she had made a mistake and asked him for help. Amber herself said she tried to help both of them, but there was no blood on her shoes or her clothes, which there probably would have been if she had tried to revive both of them or stop the bleeding. When the police officers who had been called to the apartment arrived, their body camera footage shows that Amber was outside the apartment and that the door to Botham's apartment was closed. She was therefore not inside the apartment to provide first aid to Botham, even though she was well qualified to do so by virtue of her profession. During questioning, Amber explained that she was exhausted after being on duty for over 13 hours straight. This had been the case several times over the past week. She hadn't gotten much sleep, she said, although she said it was normal for her to sleep only about five hours a night. When asked during questioning to explain how she got into the apartment and when she had drawn her gun, Amber said that she had put her hand on the gun on her hip as soon as she noticed the apartment's front door was not properly closed. According to her own account, Amber had heard something moving inside the apartment, and while opening the door with one hand, she reached for the gun with the other and pulled the gun out. According to Amber, she could not see who was inside the apartment. As she put it, she saw the silhouette of a person on the sofa. During questioning, Amber said that she had repeatedly asked the person on the couch to put their hands up and that it was then normal for people to be aware that they should put their hands up and not move or come towards you. That may have been a way to justify her shooting both of them twice. Amber had used a shooting technique known as double tap. In a double tap, two shots are fired in quick succession because the first shot is often not accurate and can therefore miss the target. For example, because the shooter's arm twitches from the shot. A technique often used by the police, which she herself had learned in the police force and which was therefore ingrained in her. According to Amber, the police officers and paramedics who arrived on the scene had ordered her out of the apartment. So she had gone to one of the police cars outside to wait. Police car camera footage shows Amber sitting in the car with her neck bent and then another police officer approaching the car and turning off the camera. When asked later to explain why he did so, 
The officer said he had turned off the camera because he thought Amber was going to call a lawyer from the car and therefore needed to be able to talk in peace without the conversation being videotaped. According to the officers who interviewed Amber, she was calm and consistent in her explanation of what had happened, and she showed obvious remorse. The officers therefore had no reason to believe that the act had been premeditated or that Amber had deliberately entered the wrong apartment to shoot both of them. Initially, Amber was charged with manslaughter, but 10 days after Botham's death, the charge was changed to murder. Now, I'm getting a little technical, but hang in there. In the state of Texas, the crime of manslaughter can refer to two types of acts. First, manslaughter can refer to homicide, where a provoked offender acts with homicide as a consequence. In this case, the provocation must be provable. Second, manslaughter can refer to causing the death of another person by accident, for example, driving drunk and causing a car accident. In both cases, the penalty can be up to 20 years in prison. The definition of a homicide is that a person acts with intent to kill another person, and it involves some prior planning. As an exception, murder can sometimes be committed using the crime of passion defense, which means that the act is committed under a strong emotional response. For example, if you catch your spouse in the act of cheating and shoot or otherwise fatally injure the other person, this passion defense can be used. Murder is a first-degree crime, but murders of a passionate nature may carry a lesser penalty. In Texas, the penalty for murder can range from 5 to 99 years. Why Amber's crime was changed to murder will become clear later when I review what was said during the trial about what happened. Botham's death and Amber's actions in the situation created a lot of public debate and protest around the city. The fact that Botham was a black, unarmed man and Amber, a white police officer, made the situation particularly sensitive. Many protesters found it incomprehensible that black men in the United States are not safe from police violence, not even in their own homes. The situation was further provoked by the fact that, just weeks before Botham's death, another police officer had been charged in court with the murder of an unarmed black teenager. 15-year-old Jordan Edwards, along with his brother and friends, had left a private party that got out of hand, mainly because there were about 100 young people present, many of them drunk. Jordan was sitting in the front seat next to the driver of the car when police who had arrived at the scene had fired three shots through the passenger side window. One of the shots had hit Jordan in the head. Afterwards, police had tried to say that the teenager's car had backed away aggressively from the officers, but the police car's dashboard camera showed that the teenager's car had driven away from the officers at normal speed. The police officer who shot Jordan was sentenced to 15 years for murder in August 2018. The people now protesting Botham's death remembered Jordan's fate well and were outraged that so soon after, there would now be a new trial of a police officer who had shot and killed an unarmed black man. Many were also frustrated that Amber had not even been fired from her job as a result of the murder charges. It was only after pressure from the public that she was fired. As protesters moved through the streets of Dallas, Botham's funeral took place. 
over 1,500 people attended the funeral. All of the guests were asked to wear something bright red, as it was Botham's favorite color. The trial against Amber began in September 2019, about a year after Botham's death. Due to the high media profile the case had received, selecting an impartial jury was a challenge, and it took a week to pick the jurors. The defense wanted the trial to be moved to another district because of all the media hysteria, but the judge disagreed. However, to curb media interest in the case, the judge decided to prohibit both the defense and prosecution from commenting publicly on the case, for example, by giving interviews to the press or similar. The day before the trial was due to begin, however, the prosecutor broke the ban when he gave an interview and said that in his view, the only right thing to do was to charge Amber with murder. Not surprisingly, Amber's defense tried to use the prosecutor's breach of the warrant to get all charges against Amber dropped. After the judge had interviewed all the jurors and was satisfied that none of them had seen the prosecutor's interview, she decided that the trial could continue as normal. When the trial finally began, both sides, the prosecution and the defense, gave their opening statements. The defense said that the whole case was a tragic accident and that nothing criminal had happened. Amber had acted on her instincts and in accordance with police procedures in a situation where one feels threatened. In his opening statement, Amber's lawyer pointed out that the apartment building and its parking garage were labyrinthine and difficult to navigate, so there was nothing strange about mistaking which floor you were on, especially if, like Amber, you were exhausted after a long day at work. The defense had interviewed residents in the block, 93 of whom had said they had sometimes parked their car in the wrong place or on the wrong floor. The lawyer pointed out that there were no separate floor numbers in the underground car park, and that it was up to the driver to keep track of which floor the person had reached. According to the interviews conducted by the defense, several people had complained to those responsible for the maintenance of the building that residents and their guests parked their cars in the wrong places or on the wrong floors. The lawyer also pointed out that Amber had only been living in the building for two months, so she was not yet completely used to the layout of the building. Furthermore, the defense argued that a person in a familiar place could not be expected to be aware of their surroundings and take precise notice of what was around them. In addition to the fact that several of the other residents had parked their cars on the wrong floors, there were also 46 residents who, like Amber, had entered the wrong apartment. The defense also pointed out that a police officer who had investigated Botham's death had said that several times during the searches of the apartment, he had accidentally walked into the wrong floor and had found the building layout confusing and difficult to navigate. So the defense wanted to paint a clear picture that people other than Amber had got lost in the building, even people who lived there. In his opening statement, Amber's lawyer also pointed out that the area where Amber and Botham lived was not the safest. Cars and houses had been broken into, and it was common for homeless people to sneak into apartment buildings to find shelter or warmth in the hallways. Because of her work, Amber had a good insight into the type of crime that was taking place in her neighborhood, which is why the defense believed she had a credible reason to fear that someone had broken into her apartment. 
The defense also addressed a fact they expected the prosecution to address, that Amber had a secret relationship with a married coworker. The defense argued that their relationship had in fact ended long ago and that the text messages exchanged between the two during the day were just pure flirtation that any colleague could engage in. That it was just pure flirtation, some might say, was an understatement. For in the hours before the shooting, Amber had sent a message to her colleague saying, I'm so horny today, and had posted a picture on her Snapchat with the caption, Would you like to touch this? According to the defense, there was nothing in the message to suggest that Amber and her colleague had planned to meet up later that evening. The defense stressed that Amber was very tired after the 13-hour shift and just wanted to go to bed and sleep. In the phone conversation Amber had with her colleague, the man she was having a sexual relationship with, as she drove home in the car, the defender said, it was all about work. The defense also pointed out that the door to Botham's apartment did not quite fit in the sill, so the door could easily open if not closed properly. This meant, for example, that if you pushed it a little or put a key in the keyhole of the door, the door would somehow pop open. In the defense's view, Amber therefore had every reason to believe that someone had broken into her apartment. When Amber had entered the apartment, she had, in her own words, asked him to put his hands up, but Botham had not done so. It was therefore only natural in the defense's view that Amber, who was half Botham's size, felt threatened when Botham got up from the sofa and started walking towards her while shouting, hey, hey, in a loud voice. The defense also explained that Amber did not try to help Botham after the shooting because she knew it was futile to help and that only trained paramedics should try to save Botham. It was natural, the defense argued for Amber to have anxiety about losing her job because of what had happened. She had probably gone into shock when she realized what had happened and was therefore unable to think and act rationally. Interestingly, the defense also relied on Amber's colleague, with whom she was having an affair, as Amber's support and security, to whom it was natural for Amber to send a text message asking for help immediately after the shooting. Even though only 10 minutes earlier, the defense had defined the relationship between Amber and the colleague as mere flirtation. The defense painted a picture of Amber as a police officer. She was a hero on the job who went to great lengths to protect Dallas from child molesters and other thugs. This kind of portraiture is fairly typical in these kinds of cases, where the person is portrayed as either good or bad to try to influence how the jury views the defendant or victim. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When it was the prosecutor's turn to make his opening statement, it focused a lot on the fact that everyone should be able to live in peace and safety in their own home and that a person carrying a gun has to be much more aware and careful of their surroundings than other people. 
The prosecutor also pointed out initially that although Amber may have been scared when she opened the door and saw Botham, Botham was probably also very scared. He had been sitting on the couch in his own apartment, eating ice cream and watching sports, when someone came into his apartment with a gun and started yelling. The prosecution also raised the question of whether Amber's misconduct was the cause of Botham's death. The prosecution painted a picture of Amber neglecting her duties during the working day because in the last hours of her shift, she had sent several naughty messages to the colleague with whom she was having the affair. Contrary to what the defense had claimed in their submission, there were dozens of messages, both text and picture, in which Amber and her colleague had agreed to meet later that evening. The colleague had directly asked, when can we meet? To which Amber had replied, when this is over, referring to her long shift. The prosecutor found it interesting that Amber had repeated so many times how tired she was, because how tired are you really if you have planned to meet up with your secret lover to have sex that evening? In addition, the prosecutor took up the fact that Amber had been talking on the phone while driving home from work. Amber had been talking on the phone as she drove through the car park and had accidentally driven up to the fourth floor when she should have parked her car on the third floor. In the prosecution's view, this must mean that she was very preoccupied with something other than driving, and it was this inattention that had caused her to drive the car up to the wrong floor. The prosecutor pointed out that the third and fourth floors of the car park were completely different. The building could not be accessed beyond the fourth floor, so there was a difference between the roof on this floor and that on the third floor. When Amber parked her car, she could see the sky, which is not possible from the third floor of Amber's own apartment. It was therefore strange, the prosecution argued, that Amber had not noticed this big difference between the floors. After parking the car, Amber had to walk into the building and down two long corridors to reach her own apartment, or rather the apartment she thought was hers. She walked around the hallways for maybe a minute or a minute and a half, but still didn't realize she was on the wrong floor. There were apartment numbers lit up next to each apartment door, so even if it had been dark in the hallways, Amber would have seen the numbers. On the fourth floor, all the apartment numbers began with 14, while on Amber's own floor, the third floor, the apartment numbers began with 13. Again, something Amber didn't register as she walked down the hallways. Many residents also had doormats, doorknobs, or other decorations at their front doors, for example. Amber didn't notice that the door decorations and doormats were different from those on her floor either. Perhaps most astonishing, the prosecutor said, was that Amber didn't even realize she was in the wrong apartment when she got to Botham's door. Indeed, Amber herself did not have a doormat in front of her apartment, but the floor was concrete gray. Botham, on the other hand, had a bright red doormat, which Amber did not notice, although she probably looked down a bit. At least when she put or tried to put the key in the lock on the door to the apartment. The prosecutor also mentioned that Botham had not locked the front door for some reason, and that it was possible that the door had been left slightly ajar, so that when Amber had put her key in the lock, the door had clicked open. This was not mentioned in the prosecution's statement, but several sources have said that the door had an electronic lock with a green light above it, which lit up if the door was opened. If it lit up red, the door had not been opened. 
Most people are more likely to know this system from hotels than apartments, but in this apartment block, the locks had such a light. So Amber must have also missed the fact that the light on the lock had turned red when she put the key in the lock. Perhaps the most important point of the prosecutor's speech was that although Amber had justified many of her actions by saying that they were rooted in police work, by entering Botham's apartment, she was completely ignoring the instructions she had learned on the job. Amber was still outside the apartment when she realized that someone was inside. The safest and right thing to do in this situation would have been for Amber to take the police radio she was wearing and call for backup, to act in accordance with the police's own instructions. Amber did not feel threatened at this point, but could have gone out to wait for backup without Botham, who was inside the apartment, even noticing. The prosecutor stressed that Amber had mentioned several times that she had been scared. But if she had been scared, why had she gone into the apartment alone, especially when she knew as a police officer that she should act differently in such a situation? It's also interesting that Amber justifies firing the two bullets by stating that that's what the police taught her but that history does report a lot of other lessons that she didn't follow, such as not driving while talking on the phone, calling for extra help at a burglary, and giving first aid to a person shot while waiting for paramedics. The trial against Amber took several days, and I won't mention every detail here because that would take forever, but I would like to highlight a few witnesses who spoke during the trial. First, the forensic doctor who had examined Botham's injuries testified that Amber's story that Botham had got up and moved against her could not be true. According to the doctor, it was likely that Botham had actually been hiding from Amber behind the couch when he was shot, or else he had been bent over the couch and therefore had no way of reacting in any effective way to Amber entering his apartment. It was not possible that he had been standing upright when he was shot, the injuries to Botham clearly showed that he must have been sitting on some sort of stool when he was shot. In addition, some of the other residents of the apartment building were also questioned in the case, including the caretaker, who said that many residents had had problems with the electronic locks and that one of the residents who had complained about the non-functioning lock was Amber herself. By extension, of course, the prosecutor raised the question that if there were problems with the locks, why had Amber assumed that her apartment had been broken into? Surely, it could just as easily have been that Amber herself had closed the door in an unfortunate manner in the morning when she had gone to work. On the other hand, the defense used the same point to argue the exact opposite. Because Amber knew there were problems with the locks, she had every reason to believe that someone had tried to break into her apartment. Perhaps one of the most interesting statements came from the neighbor across from Botham, a man named Joshua Brown. Joshua said that at the time of the shooting, he himself had just come home and heard two people talking outside his apartment, a man and a woman. He couldn't make out the words clearly because the voices blended together. Joshua denied hearing Amber ask Botham to put his hands up. Joshua also said that twice during the time he had lived in the building, he had accidentally walked up to the wrong floor. The first time he discovered it because the key didn't fit in the lock, and the second time because there was a flower arrangement on the floor that wasn't supposed to be on his floor. 
Joshua's testimony was one of the most important throughout the trial, as he heard the shooting and saw the ensuing chaos in the hallway. Ten days after his testimony, two days after the trial ended, Joshua was shot and killed just a few blocks from where Botham was shot. Initially, many suspected that the shooting was somehow connected to the trial because Joshua had been reluctant to testify, saying he was afraid and worried about how his testimony might bring him unfavorable publicity. Dallas police denied that Joshua's shooting had anything to do with Amber's case, and it eventually emerged that the shooting was connected to a drug deal gone bad and that Joshua had apparently been robbed before the shooting. The shooters were eventually caught and charged with Joshua's murder, but I have been unable to find any information on whether they were ever convicted of the crime. Amber also testified during the trial itself, and many lawyers who have since become familiar with the case have suggested that this may have been a mistake. When Amber was asked to explain the events, she gave as consistent an explanation as she had given during questioning, which I will therefore not repeat. When Amber was questioned in court, she admitted of her own accord that she shot Botham with the intention of causing his death. As I will explain in a moment, this admission was crucial to the verdict. Amber was remorseful in court, saying that she would do anything to take back her actions and that she hated herself for what had happened and that she repented every day for what she had done. Like some other states, Texas has a stand-your-ground law, which means a resident has the right to defend themselves or their property with a weapon if necessary. The defense wanted to invoke this, and although the prosecutor objected, the judge agreed that the defense could invoke self-defense if they wanted to, and that Amber had the right to defend herself in the situation with a gun because she believed she was in her own home. The prosecution pointed out at the trial that when considering self-defense, the jury should consider two questions. First, whether Amber really had reason to believe she was in her own home, or whether she should have been able to realize as she moved around the apartment building that she was headed to the wrong residence. Another important point was that although the defense wanted to invoke the stand-your-ground law, it was really Amber herself who entered another person's apartment. This turns the whole idea of the law on its head and gives the intruder the right to shoot the homeowner. In closing arguments, the defense still tried to sharpen the jury's focus on the difference between murder and manslaughter. It was possible that Amber could be convicted of both. When the trial ended and the jury retired to vote, it took them only six hours to reach a consensus. At the end of the trial, Amber was found guilty of murder. That Amber was convicted of murder was ultimately a surprise to many. The jury based its decision on the fact that Amber herself had stated that she had intended to kill Botham when she picked up her gun. Before the trial ended, the jury had to decide what Amber's prison sentence should be. It could be anything from five to 99 years. The defense feared that the jury's opinion would be influenced by the prosecution's attempt to smear Amber's personality, as tweets and text messages from Amber that could be interpreted as racist had begun to leak to the public. In one of the published texts, Amber's friend, who is also a police officer, had sent her a text message commenting on a parade which took place on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, in which he wrote, 
when does this end, lol? To which Amber had replied, quote, when MLK is dead. Oh, wait, unquote. Amber's colleague, with whom she had had a relationship, had sent her a message saying he was at the same parade with five black police colleagues, to which Amber replied, quote, not racist, but have a completely different way of working and it shows, unquote. Amber had also saved memes on her Pinterest page that made fun of guns and shooting. One meme, with a picture of the yellow bespectacled minion, for example, read, People are so ungrateful. No one ever thanks me for having the patience not to kill them. The defense thought it was outrageous that such things were dug up and used to try to influence the verdict. But the prosecution pointed out that the accused had done exactly the same with both of them, the defense had repeatedly reproduced the fact that Botham smoked cannabis every now and then in an attempt to make Botham appear dangerous or a hardened criminal. The jury ultimately decided that Amber should be sentenced to 10 years in prison, of which she would serve at least five years. Many believe that this is too lenient a sentence, especially considering that someone convicted of murder can receive life in prison. The jury reached a consensus on the length of the sentence after only an hour of deliberation, stressing that Amber's tweets, memes, her text messages, or other such factors had no bearing on the sentence. At the end of the trial, there was a very emotional moment in the courtroom. Botham's younger brother embraced Amber and said he had forgiven her and wished her no harm. A very different reaction from other members of Botham's family, one of whom, for example, had said he hoped Amber would rot in hell for what she had done. As I mentioned in the introduction, this case has understandably divided people, and there are many different opinions about the verdict. Everyone seems to agree that Amber did not plan her action in advance and that the explanation that she mistakenly went to the wrong apartment is true and not a cover story. However, one of the points raised in this case is that a person carrying a gun needs to be particularly aware of their surroundings. It has also been pointed out that Amber, as a police officer, should have known how to handle a suspected burglary and that being alone in the situation with no backup, she should have acted differently. It is terrible that Amber made such a mistake and it is only right that the verdict took into account that it was a careless mistake but even more terrible, at least in my view, is that Botham was sitting in his own home, on the sofa, eating ice cream and watching sports when he was suddenly killed. For such an act, I believe there should be a punishment. That's all I have to say this time. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this was Tracing Darkness. The show is originally created by Tilda Loxonen and adapted into English by Podster. Thanks for listening. Next time, we'll be tracing the steps of another interesting case. Interesting case.